Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent conversations we've had on JM in the AM. Jason Greenblatt, we had the opportunity to speak with him in studio about his brand new book, In the Path of Abraham. Here's that interview on JM Rewind on the Nahum Single Network. To America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Jason Greenblatt is in our studio. He's actually visiting our temporary studio here in Teaneck, New Jersey, to give me the opportunity to speak with him face-to-face about the brand-new book. The book is entitled In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump made peace in the Middle East, and how to stop Joe Biden from unmaking it. Jason Greenblatt was appointed by President Trump in 2017 as an assistant to the president and special representative for international negotiations in his role as the White House special envoy to the Middle East. He served as one of the chief architects of the Peace to Prosperity Plan between Israel and the Palestinians and between Israel and its Arab neighbors. He was also a key player in building the foundation for the Abraham Accords through which the United Arab Emirates, the Kingdom of Bahrain, Sudan, and the Kingdom of Morocco have normalized relations with Israel. An honor to welcome Jason Greenblatt to our studio here at JM in the AM. Good morning, sir. Good morning. So excited to be here. And uh, you made it really easy for me because I just had to sort of roll out of bed, go to shul and show up. I appreciate that. I knew that this Teaneck location would certainly prove to be more convenient and uh, beneficial for, uh, for a lot of potential guests. And I'm glad you're able to be here uh, this morning, we were actually joking earlier about the uh, uh, appearance that you were scheduled to make during the Trump campaign to Jersey City in our old studio. And, of course, traffic derailed all of that. So thank God we didn't have that situation this morning. So you are a Gush guy. You spent time in Yeshivat Haaretzion in Israel as a youth. You point out in the book, and for those who are not familiar, you explain that this is a common occurrence for a gap year, for a post-high school year, uh, for so many people in our community. And it's funny that you end up in the Judean hills when that area becomes such an important focus of yours and the Trump administration so many decades later. What happens after uh, you spend time at Yeshivat Haaretzion? Where were you in college and how do you end up being a member of Donald Trump's team way before the White House was in anyone's thoughts? Well, I went to YU after Gush and then I went to NYU Law School, spent a couple of years at a big law firm, uh, enjoyed my practice and one day I got a call from a headhunter that there was an open real estate in-house job which was very, very hard to come by those days and I ended up getting interviewed and worked for Trump for 20 years, had an amazing Amazing uh, career there. I loved working for him, for his family. It was very exciting. And one day he ran for president. As an, I write in the book, the rest is history. It certainly is. That, so you start working for him in what year? Uh, about ninety January 97. This is way before he's a big television star, or America is very familiar with him at that point? People are familiar with him right. for different reasons. Right. He, he didn't become the television had, star that he was. He had not uh, started The Apprentice or anything like that. Right, that came later on. I can imagine. And, and you had a role in any of that, or the whole television experience and everything that he was going through at that point really did not involve his regular day-to-day staff? No, he had a very varied business. Entertainment was part of it, so I negotiated the deal for The Apprentice. In mm. fact, I, I remember when Mark Burnett first came into the office, we met him, he pitched uh, Donald Trump on the show. Mark Burnett leaves, and Donald and I, then Donald and I, now President Trump and I, <laughs> and some of my other colleagues, we all look at each other and we think, who is this guy? But it was a runaway hit. You know, the first season was just so amazing. And then, of course, you can imagine the agreement that I initially drafted was pretty thin. 
for the second season and beyond, it was quite an extensive agreement. And of course, then it uh, explodes into other areas, celebrity stuff, and you know all the different uh, iterations of The Apprentice that followed afterwards. Now, you write in the book, and I believe I have the date correct. I'm sure you know it by heart. You write in the book about April sixteenth, nineteen. Excuse me, nineteen. April sixteenth, twenty sixteen. Am I right about that? Am I getting it right? When that, he announced his candidacy. Th- well, I'm thinking of the day. Oh, oh yeah. I'm thinking of the day that I was in the room. With a group of Jewish journalists or journalists representing, you know, Jewish outlets. Let's let's put it that way. This is in Trump Tower, right near your office, right? Another floor yeah, of one of, floor below, exactly. one floor below where you are. And the meeting is, uh, and this is how it was pitched to me, and I guess everybody in the room. We're going to have an opportunity to ask questions of this candidate. We're going to have a chance to speak to Donald Trump and see what his positions are on matters important to us, whether it be Israel, Jewish community, family issues, etc., things that are important uh, to our community. And we are gathered there. I guess there are about 40 people in the room around a very large conference table. Um, he's at the front, of course, and uh, making this presentation and really talking about a variety of issues. At some point during that meeting, someone asks him about policy regarding settlements And for the purpose of this conversation, we'll assume everyone knows what I mean when I say that. Policy regarding settlements. At that point, if I have this correct, I'm telling you I remember this so vividly. I may even have mentioned this to you at some point since then. Um, He gets on his his phone, on his intercom, and he asks somebody to to page you to have you uh, come to this big conference room. And you walk in, and you're standing in the back of the room. If I, I'm telling you, I see it as if, I'm, as if I'm there right now. You're standing in the back of the room, and I believe this was the question he posed to you in front of all of us. I believe he said, Jason, what is our policy on settlements? I think, I'm telling you, I think that was the exact quote. Maybe you remember it a little differently. But this is happening, and I'm, I come back from this meeting to my staff in our Manhattan office, and I say to everybody, I think I just witnessed the actual appointment of somebody to a position in the future White House, because until Jason Greenblatt walked into that room, I don't think he had a clue that he was about to be asked or about to be consultant consulted on matters regarding the Middle East. Am I right that you walked in as dumbfounded as I'm describing? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I write about it in the book, right? right? And I had no idea what the meeting was about. I actually thought it was a business meeting. Oh, I walk sorry. in, I see about 40 people. I get asked this very sensitive question, and of course I knew my opinion, and I I suspected that Trump agreed with me because we had had conversations over the years. I explained that settlements were not the obstacle to peace. Uh, You can imagine some in the room were very offended by that. The headlines after, I think there was one headline that says, Jewish settler who totes an M16 gun becomes advisor to Trump on Israel. Uh, First of all, I don't even like the word settlements, right? It became a pejorative word. We should really call them what they are, which are cities, neighborhoods, and towns. Um, I think people have a complete misunderstanding. But I will say, and I'll just use the word settlements for the purpose Mm -hmm. of this conversation. It's a little bit easier. I will say that that followed me through the White House in many ways. The day after Trump um, actually won the election, I did an interview for Israeli radio, and they asked me if settlements were the problem. I said they weren't. I turn on the TV and I see the, I think it was the State Department spokesman who, I don't know what he does now, his name is John Kirby, saying that Greenblatt has no idea what he's talking about. Um, early on in the White House, somebody issued a statement from the National Security Council that because Israel had made a settlement announcement that it was a very negative statement about settlements. And I was very upset because that wasn't our policy. The White House said, just take care of it. So we changed, slowly but surely, we changed the policy. 
But I will say that people didn't understand who we were. And there was a point in time where someone, some group of people from Israel wanted to protest my house here in Teaneck because they thought that we weren't supportive of settlements. It was, it was rather shocking. But I think we totally changed the conversation about settlements. I, you know, I'm not sure that the Biden administration is going in a different direction, but it's one of the most single misunderstood issues about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as if that's the reason that the Palestinians have not sat down with the Israelis to negotiate in good faith. No question about it. And he was, meaning the president, the eventual president, was familiar with this whole topic, or the day that I saw you answering this question, is that the day he started to become familiar with it? He was familiar with it the way a normal American is familiar with it. We definitely had to educate him. We had to educate ourselves. You know, if I had come into the White House fully uh, using the education that I had, reading Jewish media, listening to you, listening to Malcolm Honeline and others, um, that wouldn't be enough. I really needed to understand from everybody's perspective all the issues first, including this very issue, before I felt confident to be able to make the statements that I made. One my first or second week, there was a European deputy foreign minister who came in Number one or number two on the list was, con, you know, condemning the settlements, explaining how we had to put an end to it. I don't think the person went as far as saying that we had to demand withdrawal, but it's always the issue. So I said to the person, you know, that's not true, that settlements are the issue. And she, she laughed and she said, oh, Jason, I knew that you would say that because, of course, they get briefed ahead of time. <laughs> but once you push back on people and they, you know, they realize that it's a false argument. They, they, they take a step back and move on to another issue. Uh, Jason Greenblatt is here. The book is called In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking it. Um, it. Was there a benefit at all to how far the the um, Obama administration had gone in its relationship with Israel or how, how much more separated the United States administration was from Israel on so many issues during that time, meaning that because of the deal with Iran, because of the attitude toward Netanyahu, because of the, um, uh, the, the lack of... Um, a veto on the uh, on the uh, resolution in the United Nations that that did not take place, if you want to call it a lack of veto, right before the Trump administration ended, uh, right before the Obama administration ended. With all those things happening, was that advantageous to someone like yourself who wanted to progress in Middle East negotiations as opposed to walking in where there was not that much animosity created by the Obama administration? I think there was. I think the Iran deal loomed large. There's no question that every country, Israel and its Arab neighbors, told us that they had felt abandoned by the Obama administration because of the Iran deal. The Palestinians were silent on that. They didn't focus right. on the Iran deal ever. Uh, but the, I think the doors were open to us in a way that uh, was very, very beneficial to us. And, of course, Israel felt uh, very abandoned with that resolution. Uh, it was a very shameful resolution, and, and worse, it was done literally before President Trump walked into the Oval Office. I mean, right. There was no reason to do that other than his dislike or hate for Bibi Netanyahu. You know, they were going to make a point, and John Kerry's speech was just a terrible, terrible speech. Yeah, it was outrageous, and that's why the Trump tweet, and people have their opinion about Trump tweets, but the Trump tweet that followed uh, in terms of, you know, January 28th is, is, is not coming fast enough. I don't think I'm, I'm giving you the exact quote, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, was a real statement to to those who care about real peace in the Middle East and those who care about the future of Israel. And uh, he used the opportunity of everything that was happening with the Obama administration vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel to, to, to go ahead and, uh, and make that statement and to pivot in that way. Are you then saying that it is possible that the, the conditions that were laid out, specifically the Obama outreach to Iran and the eventual 
uh, Iran deal. Is it possible that's what that is what ended up causing uh, better relations and and real formal relations between Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco? Is it possible that 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 Iran deal pushed those countries, you know, over the edge when it came to what they felt was their future in the Middle East peace process? Yeah, well, indeed, but let's take a step back, right? The Abraham Accords has many, many parents, and among those parents include Israeli diplomats and others who actually were floating around the region even before the Iran deal, starting to build small bridges, which is very, very important. But the Iran deal, no doubt, put um, lots and lots of relationship there under the table, as they used to say. And when I started in the White House, there was not even a glimmer of hope that the Abraham Accords would would happen. But week by week, month by month, we saw it, and I think the Iran deal was a big part of the glue that held the region together. And today, with the Biden administration saying that they're, you know, of course, Iran can never have a nuclear weapon. Those are words. You know, we want to see action. Uh, the issue is that they all still are very, very nervous because right now Iran is extremely close. There doesn't seem to be a plan B, although we never know. You know, I'm not in the room. I didn't like right. when people criticized me when they weren't in the room. It could be that the Biden administration and the Israeli government have a plan B. But I think it's pushing the region closer and closer together. So when the uh, UAE um, experiences all of this, the Iran deal, uh, peace with Israel, normalizing relations, etc., and has this relationship with the uh, uh, United States, and everyone is suspecting or the media is predicting that this is going to cause... Uh, an absolute, you know, firestorm in the Middle East. I'm not even talking about the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem where it was predicted that there'll be riots everywhere and, and blood everywhere. I'm not even talking about that yet. But the the notion was, and the, the media liked to trumpet the fact, that uh, that if there's any type of, of uh, formal and normalized relations between an Arab country and Israel, you are going to see how the rest of the Arab world, at, at the minimum, the quote-unquote Palestinians, are going to riot to the point and make Israel so uncomfortable to the point where they're not going to be able to continue you know, with normal existence. None of that ever happened. Why? Uh, people misunderstand it. They live in the past, and that's the reason that um, I write, one of the reasons I wrote this book is to myth-bust, Right. All of that might have been true a decade ago, 20 years ago, who knows. But it wasn't true now, and I'm sure we'll get to Jerusalem later mm -hmm. in this interview, but people are unwilling to look past what happened in the past, look past the threats of the past, and understand that everybody in the region, except maybe the Palestinian leadership, wants to move forward. They want to move forward in a different direction. They have these amazing visions. They're changing their society. But most people don't understand that. So Jason Greenblatt is here. You know the, the leaders of the UAE. Do they resent the Biden administration right now? Do they resent the fact that they're making every attempt to stay at the table with Iran and, and arrange for some type of, of deal to go through? At the beginning of the Biden administration, they certainly resented them. They had trouble with uh, the weapon sales that were promised by the United States. They weren't being supported when the Houthi terrorists, and they, you know, they removed the, des the Biden administration removed the designation of terrorists from the Houthis, the Houthis fire rockets at the UAE and Saudi Arabia the same way Hamas fires rockets at Israel. So they definitely resented it. I think they've repaired the relationship, so it's okay right now. But I think the Biden administration has a long way to go to repair the relationship with the UAE and certainly Saudi Arabia. Are you surprised? And, you know, let's not, uh, let's not take for granted those that have already joined. I mentioned the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco. Are you surprised that more countries have not gone ahead and formalized relations with Israel? 
No, I'm not. I mean, I'm certainly hopeful, and I, I do believe it's inevitable. But at the moment, uh, you had the Biden administration until this recent trip to Saudi Arabia, totally disrespecting Saudi Arabia, saying, you know, that they're a pariah, they have no social redeeming social value and things like that. I think President Biden turned the page a little bit. He probably has many more pages and chapters to turn. But uh, what's the upside? They all have a lot of things going on. They have a lot of goals and things to do with their country. And, you know, why do they need this headache if they're not going to get support from the United States? Ironically, the, um, the, um, um, I was going to say on the point of the, uh, of the UAE uh, and Morocco, um, uh, there, there was an irony there for a moment that <laughs> just escaped my mind. I apologize. <laughs> Jason Greenblatt's here. The book is called The Path of Abraham. I'm assuming it's available everywhere. Available everywhere, your bookstores, Amazon, anywhere you get your books. Um, so now let's talk about Jerusalem because, again, the media brainwashed everybody into thinking that the world would completely explode if, in fact, the embassy was moved, if, in fact, the... Um, uh, the, uh, um, uh, uh, the 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 promise that every single president as a campaigner, as a, uh, uh, as a candidate had made for decades and then rescinded that promise or didn't act on it, uh, they thought that if, in fact, Donald Trump went ahead, President Trump went ahead and, and, uh, and uh, moved the embassy and endorsed the moving of the embassy, the entire Middle East would explode to the point of no return. Um, when the media was conveying that message to everyone, what was going through your mind? I laughed, as I often do with the media, right? Because I knew that we were going through the very extensive process to actually allow President Trump to keep his promise. And just remember, it's a two-part thing. It's recognize Jerusalem as the capital, right. which is important, and that happened in December of 2017. And then moving the embassy, which takes uh, a little bit more time. My friend David Friedman worked very hard to meet that deadline of May of 2018. And... Uh, the press had no idea what they were talking about. We weren't just going to, on a whim, do it. It was President Trump, of course, doing it. But we needed to make sure that these threats that people said, uh, effectively saying World War III would break out, right. were not accurate. So President Trump convened you know, all the agencies, got all the information he needed. But there's two things I want the listeners to understand that maybe they don't from behind the scenes. The first is President Trump gets even more credit than people understand because you cannot imagine the volume of phone calls that came in from world leaders, not just to President Trump, to Jared Kushner, to me, to the National Security Advisor, everybody saying, we know you announced it, but don't do it. Don't do it. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. So you have to be a really strong person to, under, you know, to have the confidence to say, you're wrong. I'm going to do it. You're absolutely wrong. And here we are in 2022, and it's fair to say, all these years later, he absolutely made the right decision. Right. The second thing people don't understand is, you know, I, I've been through so many conferences and I've gotten this question from people who, are, who claim to be experts in the Middle East. And they always say, why didn't Trump get something out of Israel or give something to the Palestinians and take something from Israel in order to recognize Jerusalem? And the answer is simple, because that's not what U.S. law says. The Jerusalem Recognition Act from 1995, bipartisan, by the way, said you do it, recognize Jerusalem, move the embassy, and the only exception to that is if there's a national security reason not to do it. Right. Trump determined there wasn't one, but it doesn't say and demand something out of Israel. So even the experts misunderstand the law, which to me is shocking, and the media, of course, follows along with the experts. Yeah, now, just devil's advocate for a moment, um, 
you know, we've seen what provocation or the the uh, myth of provocation can do to a region, right? The Intifada supposedly began because of a an act by a prime minister or a a prominent member of government in Israel, right? And we could and we, and, and whether we believe it or not, or whether we believe the narrative or not, you know, this has always been um, uh, certainly one has been associated with the other. So to think that this type of act would not lead to another intifada or not lead to some type of riots or just random terror attacks, which we know how serious they could be. Um, it, it might be somewhat naive to think that. Now, you say you laughed at it, which I understand, and I get the attitude, but you, you had to have had in the back of your mind the thought that it's possible that this is going to you know, be a little bit of a rough period of time. So I want to clarify, what I laughed at is the media saying that we weren't going to do it, that President mm-hmm. Trump was going to pull away from his promise. Um, terrorist threats are nothing to laugh at. I wasn't right. laughing at that. But we took the best intelligence that we had, uh, and I'm not, I can't share what the intelligence is. President Trump analyzed everybody's opinion on it. Uh, we understood that the other countries in the region, of course, were very, very angry or unhappy about it, but they were going to do what they needed to do to make sure that things were kept calm. Palestinian leadership, of course, by then had cut us off. Right. Uh, but or, the enemy or, stayed quiet. Hamas did. stayed quiet. Iran stayed quiet. Hezbollah stayed quiet. Because in the end... That ceremony took place in Jerusalem, and it was a really peaceful ceremony. So the, the announcement of the recognition was in Washington. The embassy um, was in Jerusalem. Right. But if you remember, Hamas actually was firing rockets that day, mm. specifically to show the world that you know they still had power and that they wanted to protest it. And I was in Israel, so I didn't see the TV coverage here, but my understanding is that it was a very bad day for TV coverage because the split screen showed this beautiful ceremony moving the embassy, and the other side was Hamas firing off rockets. Mm-hmm. But we can't allow terrorist organizations like Hamas or their, their puppeteer, Iran, to stop us from changing the world. And what does it say if I don't remember that? That's interesting. They're like it, it was random, I guess, to an extent. I think what it says is you realize that the media doesn't portray things sometimes honestly, right? Right. 100%. Jason Greenblatt's here. By the way, the irony that I that now I recall is that now as we discuss the Abraham Accords and the countries that normalized with Israel, uh, now it's funny that that um, this is all happening with Saudi Arabia as you described with President Biden when all of us were waiting with bated breath that this is the next country that's in fact going to normalize with Israel. In fact, I don't know if you were shocked, but we as observers were surprised that the Trump administration ended without Saudi Arabia being the next country part of the Abraham Accords. I wasn't surprised. I think, look, I think Saudi Arabia has come such a long way. Every trip I take there since 2019, since I left the White House, I'm more and more amazed by what's happening in that country with respect to women driving, the projects that they're working on, it's its dramatic. In fact, I'll tell you, I, I'm, I'm still in Avelis. I was saying Kaddish until last week. I was in Saudi Arabia. It was a quiet minion, but we had a minion. I was saying Kaddish in a beautiful historic site over there, and Saudis were sort of milling around as we were davening, as we were praying, and I wasn't at all uncomfortable. Now, you put me in a certain couple of cities in Europe in the middle of the street with uh, Europeans walking around me, I would tell you I'd be a little bit uncomfortable here it's almost like we're family, different customs. It's true. And people will need to get to know each other. It's true and all that. But the relationship could be so strong because we have so many things that overlap. You know, if I say kosher, they understand it. Mm -hmm. If I say I need a place to pray, 
They say, is this your fourth or fifth prayer? I say, no, it's okay. We only do three. Um, but they, we totally get each other. Yeah, I remember we kept landing in the airport in uh, Dubai, and we're, which is the last time I actually spoke with you on the air, as you recall, and I can't get over the fact that you went out of your way to join us live in person that morning, which was so amazing. And uh, you land in the airport, and of course the prayer room is, I don't remember how they refer to it, but it's, it's prominent there, and the fact that no pork is allowed in one of the sections or however it's portrayed there, I don't remember exactly. That was a sign worth taking a picture of, et cetera. So yeah, they could certainly relate to us. And you just mentioned Europe and the discomfort is why do you think that the the EU is almost irrelevant now uh, at least that's my impression almost irrelevant in negotiations with Israel uh, and the PA and just you know in in terms of having a voice in terms of the future of the Middle East peace process um there was an effort last week that we had uh, that we mentioned on the air last week uh, of trying to get the Europeans more inv- by the PA to try to get the Europeans more involved because they're, I guess, wary of American involvement and whether they would be, you know, sided uh, or um, or in f- you know favorable to the Palestinians. Is the EU completely irrelevant now in this process? I think they are. First of all, and I don't want to, you know, not all of Europe, but the the traditional European countries that are involved are very unhelpful to Israel, very pro-Palestinian. Last week I was in Israel, I took a tour to Hebron, and on the way to Hebron, our tour guide was showing us these white uh, plastic things covering saplings, you know, young trees. Mm -hmm. The Europeans are funding land grabs by Palestinians throughout Judea and Samaria. Others call it the West Bank, and it should never be called occupied Palestinian territory. Mm -hmm. That's a false label. And they're funding building of homes there because the way the land laws work there is if you build on it and if the Israeli government doesn't do something about it, which apparently for some reason the Israeli government isn't, the land eventually becomes Palestinian. So the Europeans are very, very bad actors in this context. I made a speech at the UN Security Council where I pointed, it's a long story, but the gist of it is I pointed out that just because the Palestinians demand East Jerusalem as their capital, that doesn't mean they have a right to East Jerusalem. There's no piece of paper that says East Jerusalem belongs to the Palestinians, yet everybody, especially the Europeans, keeps saying that. But you can imagine the reaction from some of the Europeans. Germany was furious with me. France, furious with me. The UK was fine. Um, they're just, I, I don't want to say they're anti-Israel, that's unfair, but the way they look at the conflict is so skewed, so distorted, so uh, it comes from a place of a complete not understanding of reality. So I think they've made themselves irrelevant. Uh, one of the most intriguing parts of your book cover is that uh, you're actually uh, offering uh, the possibility that there's a way to stop Joe Biden, President Biden, from unmaking this whole process. Um, I mean, is there really anything that can be done to make sure that he doesn't unmake it? So he's gone through a bit of a progression. You know, for the first year after the Abraham Accords, uh, they didn't even use the term Abraham Accords. I keep telling people this. You should Google this clip of Ned Price, the State Department spokesman, who was at a press conference and squirming at the podium to avoid using the term Abraham Accords. <laughs> Undoubtedly, because they didn't want to give President Trump the credit he deserves. And there was a journalist in the room. He was great. I don't know who he was. Kept saying, but why don't you call them by the name? Why don't you call them by the name? And eventually, Ned Price had no choice but to call them by the name. Since then, they've, uh, they've embraced the Abraham Accords. It could be because we had such a disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. They yeah. need this sort of foreign policy win. I think his trip to Israel, President Biden's trip to Israel, um, other than the Iran issue and the Palestinian issue was fine. I think President Biden is not an anti-Israel person. He, I think he is a Zionist. I can't say that for his whole team. But if he continues to fall into these traps and disrespect our Arab allies and uh, 
misunderstand the Palestinian issue, and worse, try to bring the Palestinian issue into the Abraham Accords. The, you know, Secretary of State Blinken, at this historic Negev summit, when you had the foreign ministers of all the signers of the Abraham Accords, plus some others, said something to the effect that it's not a substitute, that the Abraham Accords is not a substitute to Israeli-Palestinian peace. Why are you putting it back into the mix? We took the veto card away from the Palestinians because they wouldn't negotiate in good faith. Now you're going to tie them back together? That's the danger in what they're doing. Um, the advantage of having a leader who is a businessman as opposed to a lifelong diplomat, lifelong politician, um, is one of the reasons this, this deal was made and so many other things were accomplished because of the Trump background as opposed to uh, so many others that have an, an exclusive Washington background? I think so. I think he was unafraid to break China. He was unafraid to like look at the so-called uh, talking points, the gospel, the rules, however you want to call it, and say, okay, this is the way it has to be done because this is the way the people who came before us said it had to be done, and this is the way all the experts say it has to be done. He's a businessman. He's an entrepreneur. He thrives on transactions being consummated, but that means you have to look at everything with a fresh pair of eyes, not get discouraged. I think Jared Kushner gets tremendous, tremendous courage. He's another businessman who went in wasn't afraid to break the rules in terms of saying, you know, that's not true. This isn't true. Wasn't a, it, the most optimistic guy I've ever met in my life other than maybe Trump. Interesting. So, yeah. Just amazing. Anytime we hit a roadblock and you can imagine we had so yeah. many roadblocks, especially Jared. the Palestinian peace first before anything else could be accomplished. That whole mentality had to be broken. Exactly. And, and I think it took an outsider and, and businessman being helpful, um, to, to look past that. And I think Trump and, and Jared Kushner get tremendous credit for that. Did you disagree with the president on any of this? Was there anything that you remember when it came to Jerusalem, the Abraham Accords, his attitude toward the Middle East, uh, his meetings with Netanyahu? Is there anything where, where things came to a head, where he was doing something where you felt this was either bad for him or, or, or bad for the United States policy on Israel? Almost, almost entirely no. I think where the one time I got nervous was the Palestinians do a great job in marketing their cause. And President Abbas... You know, despite what I know about him, and I'm sure what you know and many of your listeners know, does a great job. So there were times when President Abbas came across as being uh, a statesman, right? Uh, you, don't, you know, it's, it's very easy in the Oval Office to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to speak a certain way. But if the president isn't briefed on what's underlying those words, then it could be a problem. And I think that we needed to make sure that the president understood who President Abbas really is. And by the way, I'm not anti-President Abbas. I think... He's not likely to be a leader that brings peace. Right. I think, uh, you know, I'll tell you one story that we had a particularly difficult meeting at the UN General Assembly one year before they cut us off. And despite that, President Abbas came up to me. It was just before Rosh Hashanah. He kissed me on the head and he wished me a Shana Toba. So there are sides to mm. President Abbas that people, at least in our community, may not understand or see. But um, I didn't want President, President Trump and, our, you know, David Friedman and others, of course, didn't want President Trump to be misled into thinking that President Abbas was this, you know, real amazing statesman who only wanted peace. It's far more complicated than that. And President Trump, you know, I guess because we were close to him, understood that after we spoke to him about it. And we, we needed to be sure that he understood the truth. Um, and it goes without saying, I would guess, that uh, leadership in places like the UAE, um, also you would describe as uh, high-quality people, um, you know, open and honest to, to whatever degree they can be uh, with, with diplomats and visitors from other countries. Uh, I would assume you've had you know, very positive experiences there. Only positive, and with all of them, with Saudi Arabia, with right. Qatar, with Bahrain, with every one of them. How Kuwait. many trips have you made to the UAE? Uh, gosh. Uh, it's endless, eight. right? Yeah. 
uh, the region analysts. I don't know, right. but but I feel at home there now. Like right. to your point, they're warm, they're welcoming, they're honest. I think they understood that we had to trust the President Trump, so they were willing to be honest. You know, we didn't go into these meetings. Maybe the first one with the typical diplomatic talk and you take out the talking points and you say the 67 borders in East Jerusalem and all the stuff that you hear, which right. is never going to bring peace. Um, and we had some honest conversations with them. You ever wonder if you would have been in the Arafat era? I mean, you just described Abbas in a way that I'm sure has shocked many of our listeners. I, I wonder if you would have said anything similar about someone like him uh, during that era. No, I think Arafat was a bloodthirsty terrorist and just wanted to destroy Israel. And, and proudly not, demonstrated that bloodthirsty right. terrorism. And I'm not saying that Abbas right. uh, loves Israel, far right. from it. Uh, I think he's caught in a tough situation. I think if he made moves that would water down some of their demands, you know, who knows what would But happen. there's a side to him that one could appreciate. That's your point, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, Jason Greenblatt's here. The book is called In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It. Uh, you write in the book, and we're always fascinated by this topic, that uh, the president, even before he was president, uh, during your entire career with him, um, was very understanding about Shabbos, very understanding about Yontif. I'm sure I, I'm sure a three-day Shavuos. I think you even told us a story once about a three-day Shavuos. Yeah, it was Sukkot. Was it Sukkot yeah. where, where, where the deal had to be suspended for 73 hours, and that can be frustrating for somebody who likes to make deals, right, and get them done. It's dangerous. Deals could fall apart in those days, you know, in, in 72 Right. Hours. Now, in that case, I guess it didn't fall apart, right? No, I was lucky. So were, we never were really you, know were, the truth. Were you right? sitting in the Sukkot wondering <laughs> if it's going to fall apart? <laughs> can one enjoy Yontif when that's going on? Yeah, I, I I was able to put it out of my head only because he was so gracious about me leaving. You know, for him, for a guy like that to say, go home, go pray, be with your yeah. family after you tell him you're disappearing for three days and completely out of contact, uh, out of contact is, uh, he put my head at ease. In general, I don't know. Look, I, I met him that one time. Actually, that's not true. I, I met him years ago at an event. Uh, he used to go to a lot of dinners that you know, for our community and was honored at some, etc. And was also very close with some of the government officials in our community. So people had a chance to interact with him somewhat. Um, but I, I think the way the media portrays him, whether you want to call it white supremacy or racism or all, it, 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 to me, it seems so absurd. To someone like you who knows him, it must be completely unfathomable. It is. And I get this question a lot. I was at an event recently where one of the guests said to me, how does it feel to work for such a terrible anti-Semite? And it's a, it's a shocking question, but I don't blame the person because that person is reading the media. Right. Brainwash. And that's what they think. Yeah. And let me say this. And look, Charlottesville is probably the go-to point that everybody right. makes. First of all, the media does not play the entire Charlottesville. Correct. If you're going to talk about Charlottesville, I want to see the entire clip. I'm not saying that his words were excellent and i'm not saying he couldn't have done a better job and all that but at least let's have a discussion about the entire thing that he said uh because he talked about how the night before there were peaceful people right. and that doesn't make it so a lot of it is distortion manipulation and i think by the way it's eroding public trust there are so many people who simply don't uh don't understand the media they don't believe the media there's a great washington post piece uh it came out yesterday today about if you look at the percentage of people who don't trust what's being said in the media it's a wonder that they even stay in business. I don't think any business could operate the way, uh, you know, with customers who are so dissatisfied with the truth. I'm not going to defend every, president, every of President Trump's tweets, every one of his statements. I can't, I won't. But I would say that so much of it is manipulation. And you're talking to a guy who worked for him for 23 years. I never saw an ounce of anti-Semitism. I only saw quite the opposite. Right. Tremendous respect for Jews, Judaism, Israel. And um, it's hurtful. Like, you know, that's just oh, I can manipulation. Do you still work for him? I don't, no. And that ended when you left the White House? It did. 
And did he know that it was ending when you left the White House? Did he want you to stay on in a business uh, arrangement? Well, the company wasn't doing deals the way they did when I was there. So there was really no, re no reason to have a deal person like me on board. If he would not have become president, would you still be working with him in a business capacity? I think so, yeah. Interesting how life is, huh? Yeah. yeah. Although these days, it seems people jump jobs uh, right. very quickly. But, but still, the ones who were there for 20 years, yeah, you know, they no. seem to stick around. <laughs> I, I loved it. I loved working for them, with them. You know, it was, it was a great place to work. Interesting. And the family is a great family. Right. Well, yeah, they uh, they certainly seem to be. Um, it, the the Look, you write in the book that, you know, the family situation your life, your diplomatic and um, and governmental life was not conducive for someone who wants to, uh, you know, have an optimum family situation, which anything, I think anybody tuned in can understand. You know, you want to spend time with your wife and kids. You want to be around. There's so many things that go on on a daily basis that you want to be there for, and it's almost impossible. I mean, I can only imagine what the demands were on you and spending Shabbos alone in Washington, as cool as it might sound to some, especially those in their twenties who are listening, uh, you could attest to the fact that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really down feeling. It is like we, uh, I don't think we understood the lifestyle that we would get into, which is, um, thank God, I guess we didn't understand it. Cause maybe I would have said no, right. but my wife and kids stayed here in Teaneck and our life wasn't set up for that. Every Friday, Thursday, late Thursday night, usually my wife would drive down to Washington and the kids and all the Shabbos food stuffed in the minivan We'd squeeze into my apartment. We had the most beautiful Shabbases. I didn't want to complain about right. that. But, you know, even though we were in a one-bedroom apartment, it was an amazing adventure. But come Sunday, you know, if if my wife was there with the kids, you know, we knew two, three o'clock she had to start driving back. That long drive back because the kids had school the next day. If I was here, I stayed a little bit longer. But you really can enjoy Sunday. And then during the week, everybody's busy, so you're not. You're barely talking to them. My phones were always uh, under surveillance by other countries, so you don't even. You can't even talk about things that you might want to talk about. And my, you know, we had code words. It, it, it isn't the life for a family person, unless you're set up the way uh, right. where I would have moved my whole family to Washington and, and lived a brand new life. Did your kids' classmates care that you were in the White House? I think some of them thought it was very cool. They, you know, we actually were able to give some of them tours. Uh, my son had a birthday party in the bowling alley, which was great. <laughs> uh, that was a great story. I won't say which ambassador, but one of the ambassadors... Uh, kid was at this birthday party because they knew each other and by accident left the White House with his bowling shoes. Oh, <laughs> so it's like, funny. oh, an international incident. Uh, <laughs> that's terrible. But uh, And then, you know, there are those who didn't like Trump uh, and were a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, thank God. I think I only lost one friend. Uh, that I find hard to believe, especially with the neighborhood you live in. Yeah, this uh, this couple, uh, the, the the dad of this couple wrote a scathing email to me having nothing to do with what I was doing. It was all about immigration. You know, uh, look, we all got this thing about uh, David and Jared and us. Always people say, you know, uh, the Esther story, right? You never know why. Yeah. But see that? Well, he turned that into the immigration. You're there to help um, people Im immigrate to this country yeah, illegally. I ignored the email because I didn't even know what to say. It was so harsh an email. And the next, maybe two shops later, the person was coming up the hill as I was going down to Shul and he crossed the street avoided me and never spoke to me again. Uh, that's rare. I want to say that's rare. I certainly walk into rooms where people are uncomfortable if they yeah. don't like Trump. But Does that still happen? Uh, no. I, I, what's interesting to me is I, I speak in front of thousands of people now, and I would say half the people don't like Trump. Right. But most of them are willing to listen and uh, with an open heart and, and an open mind, and they may not vote for Trump if he runs again, and they may never have voted for Trump. 
and they may still dislike him, but they're willing to understand that humanity, life, president, everybody's complex. And there are sides similar to what, I don't want to compare to Trump, Trump to a boss, but it's not as black and white as people make it right. seem. So socially, it's better to be post White House than in the White House. I think so. Yeah, yeah. and and again, knowing and, and I got to be careful. I'm sitting here in Bergen County, but it's I think it's well known that there are plenty of people um, you know, with, with a potent political opinion on all sides uh, in this area. Um, you Indeed, know, I, but, but we, I find for the most part, other than that one example. Right. Uh, people, if they love him, they come up to me and they say that. And if they don't, they're respectful. And even in shul in New Jersey, when you were a member of the administration, you would say that things were relatively calm. I, I actually, my shul was extremely respectful. Mm. You know, uh, I mean, I did spend a lot of time with a friend of mine who was very involved with APAC. Maybe we spent too much time talking about Israel instead of davening. <laughs> but uh, for the most part, the shul was respectful. You know, uh, didn't you know? Didn't come into my face not in a negative way. Uh, not in a positive way. Everyone was sort of like, this is Jason. And, you know, he's here for Shabbos because most of the time I wasn't here for right. Shabbos. And uh, the Rabbi Baum, the Rabbi of Ketatar was enormously helpful. I mean, you can't imagine the Shilas, the questions, the halacha yeah, questions that you right. have to go to him with. Uh, probably made interest, it made it interesting for him too. But there could was, be another book amazing. about that. Yeah, he was amazing. Uh, you leave the White House before COVID or after COVID uh, starts? Uh, thank God before COVID because then I, I wouldn't have ever seen my family if I was there for COVID. No, that's a good point. And would he still be president if not for COVID? I think the answer is yes. You know, it's, it's hard to tell. I'm not a political guy, so right. my answer is a bit of a novice answer on that, but I think the answer is yes. There was enough support nationwide. Yeah. Um, and even the efforts, you know, there were efforts on the other side to just, you know, do anything and everything to get him out of, of, to get him out of office. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the volume of voters that we saw uh, for Biden in the election was just, you know, um, I wouldn't say unprecedented, but it was obvious that there was a real push to get the vote out. Uh, I don't, I'm, I always wonder, like you do, like you just said, I always wonder how different it would have been if COVID never hit. Um, I mean, you drive here locally, you see the price of gas, um, you see what's happening on the border. You mentioned the, um, the exit from Afghanistan, which was disastrous. I can imagine, I cannot imagine that your boss would have handled it the same way, frankly. Um, and uh, while we, and the book obviously focuses on the Middle East and your role, there are so many things about this country that are very different. I got to be careful using the words better or worse, but that are so different now uh, than during his administration. Uh, would you, you're a businessman, you worked with him in business. Would you assume that the policies that he had set in motion that got us down to a dollar and a half, you know, gallon of gas and did not lead to a recession and led to an incredibly active stock market and positive stock market, would you assume all that would have continued if he'd have a second term? I think so. I think he was absolutely right on the policies. And here, here's what I wonder, right? Climate change. Everybody's saying no oil, no oil, no oil. So we stopped pumping oil in our own country. But then it's okay for President Biden to go to Saudi Arabia and beg for oil to reduce oil prices. Either we believe you shouldn't pump oil or we understand that, well, it's not great. You do need to pump oil until we figure out how to wean ourselves off oil. Yeah. But the, the not in my backyard phrase is, is remarkable when it comes to his uh, saying it's okay for Saudi to pump oil, but not here. It's some, so, so many things just don't make sense, uh, you know. You can't fool all the people all the time. We, <laughs> that may not be true because I think the so many of us are being fooled right now um, by what's going on, uh, blaming all of this on Putin and, and that whole narrative. I can't imagine, again, that your boss would have handled it this way. But No, I agree. And I, I want to make a point because you sure. asked about Europe, right? right? So 
Iran. Uh, the Europeans are negotiating for us with Iran. Not now, because I think the deal is on life support. But for all this time, we're relying on Europeans who don't have the same national interests as us, right? They, they just want to make money from Iran. They could care less if the Middle East is threatened, certainly if Israel's threatened. But now you have Iran supplying attack drones to Russia, which is using it in Ukraine and destabilizing Europe. The question for me is, are the Europeans smart enough now to get it, to understand that Iran doesn't just threaten Israel and Saudi Arabia and potentially the U.S., but it threatens Europe too? Uh, I'm a little bit afraid the answer is no. Uh, well, I'm afraid you're right. The book is called The Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It. Jason Greenblatt, our guest, the book available everywhere, as you mentioned, and I assume it's doing very well. Are you happy with the response? Thank God, and the press has been great, and great interviews like you, where people want to have thoughtful conversations, because that's what this really is about. You can't uh, analyze this conflict with those pithy words, the two-state solution. It's far more complex than that, and I think people are interested in it, and they also are interested in Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Qatar and all these other countries, which I cover in the book as well. And there's plenty of business to be done with these countries, right? I mean, you uh, would know absolutely. that at this point. Yeah, but we have to do it their way, respectfully, slowly, honestly. And uh, I think I'm, I'm very bullish on that region. I'm not bullish on Europe, but I'm very bullish on that region. And they must be, uh, and I'm talking about now the UAE and, and, and the other countries I've normalized with Israel, they must be very impressed with what's going on business-wise in Israel these days. They are. I, I think the two cultures need to kind of mesh. You know, the Israeli culture is... How do I sign my deal yesterday on a napkin? And the Arab countries are much more careful and thoughtful and a lot of face-to-face -face meetings to learn who they're doing business with. But I think that they're learning each other and they're going to do a lot of business. And, uh, you know, it's going from zero to, according to a UAE minister, he predicts $5 billion in trade right. uh, in the next couple of years. So that's a dramatic increase. I remember when we were in the UAE right after the signing of the Abraham Accords, uh, just the hotel experience. I think the locals were shocked at how the Israelis, uh, you know, some of the things that went on in their circle. I'm not sure you've heard all of this. <laughs> and, and I think the Israelis were not uh, sure what to expect in terms of how their hosts behave uh, in the country, but all that takes getting used to, I guess. It does, but the UAE is extraordinarily welcome to Jews, to Israelis. Uh, you know, I walk around there now with a kippah, which I never did before. And uh, I think it's going to be a great relationship because they really are much more similar despite these uh, odd cultural differences. They're very similar. Can't thank you enough for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. And uh, good luck. Continued good luck with the book. And uh, all I could say is uh, you made an amazing Kiddush Hashem, in my opinion. And I know that many agree with me uh, in terms of the way uh, you handled yourself in the White House and the way you represented uh, not just the United States, but I believe the Jewish people in all these uh, international negotiations. And for that, we are completely indebted to you. Thank you. I'm grateful for that. And thank you for having me as a guest. This was a great conversation. Appreciate that. Jason Greenblatt on a Thursday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Jason Greenblatt. Sivan Rahab Meir was one of many guests we had up at Camp Misora. The noted journalist joined me for a sit-down conversation. Here is that conversation on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. I am told that um, one of the uh, most well-known, one of the most well-known people in the state of Israel, one of the most well-known people in the international Jewish community, one of the most uh, well-known journalists in the world of journalism is spending a good number of weeks up here at Camp Misora, and that would be uh, the very well-known Sivan Rahav Meir. Shalom, shalom. Nice round of applause. There we go. Shalom. Shalom, shalom. shalom. Thank, thank you for exaggerating. 
exaggerating. Yeah, so they're exa- well known. They're famous. They're- it's no exaggeration <laughs> at all. Every time I turn around, you're receiving an award or being recognized on the top of this list or that <laughs> list. Come on, you have to you have to admit that. Anyway, uh, you're spending a few weeks here with your husband. You did your mayor at Camp Missouri. How did you first? hear about Camp Missouri. When did, it, <laughs> when did it even get into your consciousness that there is such a place like exactly. Camp Missouri? First of all, I just wanted to run away to escape from the elections in Israel. You yeah. know, f- fifth elections, uh, the best place to oh, be I is gotta, here. I got to talk to you about that. We'll do, we'll do that in a couple <laughs> Not, of minutes. No, exactly. Okay. <laughs> anyway, when we had, we spent a year here on Shlichut, a World Mizrahi Movement sent us to the States, but then COVID changed everything and oh. stopped everything sure. in the middle. And I always knew there's this concept called summer camp for Jewish kids, mountains, New York, People told me, and especially Camp uh, uh, Masora, but I heard about this concept and I felt like we missed something because we had to come go back to Israel. And this year when Rav uh, Arikatz, uh, Dina, Ofer Marom, takes care of the sure. Israeli part of the camp, yep. when they asked me to, to come, I immediately said yes. Um, and we're uh, we're still jet lagged, although it's been more than a week. But we're still. I, I, I mean, knowing your life, I think you're always jet lagged. Uh, yeah, you're right, okay. yeah, because I always work for two continents. <laughs> but uh, no, it's uh, in a way we're overwhelmed because what I see here is I think it's an educational place. It's not like okay, summer vacation, have fun. It means nothing. No, whenever you go, you see chinuch, and you just spoke to Charlie. That's amazing. You know, learning the daf and the mishnah. Yep. So. Um, you can imagine, Nahum, you know, um, I don't uh, teach hockey here and or volleyball or softball, but uh, I try to teach the, the Parsha and talk to the kids about Israel and Torah. But uh, in a way, I think maybe maybe it's a startup, you know, we're the startup nation. Maybe yep. it's a startup. We should also bring it to Israel in a way. Oh, uh, I have a lot to say kids. about this. Yeah, what? I have a lot to say about this topic, whether it could work in Israel. But oh, you, well. you and I can discuss that another time. Okay. When we <laughs> analyze whether there could be a camp like Camp Masora in Israel. Sivan Rahav Meir is here, spending time here at Camp Masora. So you're impressed, and I know this because I saw your reports. You're impressed by this incredible fusion of Torah, sports, special activities, trips, uh, all the different things that uh, include the Kolel and other Torah groups here in the camp. It is a, it's like a, you, you actually referred to it this way. We've always referred to it this way. It's like a city unto, uh, unto, unto itself where exactly. all these activities and all this life is going on parallel to each exactly. other. Exactly. So you have the opportunity to live in a bubble of, of Jewish life. Sometimes the kids, they go to school and uh, and that's it. You have to learn like Yiddish uh, guide. It's part of your curriculum. It's part of you know homework assignments, yep. the uh, teachers, and what if you don't like it? And here Judaism is part of the st- you know the the way you live twenty four seven. Shabbat, by the way, is, is very special. You have dozens of minyanim here and the two koilels, and I see it as something impressive. Yeah. I guess uh, every child finds you know what what he likes here, but uh, and the lake and the you know Eretz Israel is the most beautiful of place course. on earth. But let's say number it, two is the, the, the lake here. Was it Rav Kook who said you still have to talk about the Alps and oh, how beautiful yeah. right so you could say something nice about I, the lake at Camp I discovered Sora. this summer I first the first time I discovered I'm not Rav Kook Rav Kook whenever he <laughs> left Eretz Israel he couldn't even see he couldn't even look at the mountains the rivers he said no it's ugly if you compare it to Israel what can I tell you? I'm not Rev Cook. It's it's beautiful. Here. Understood. I, I was saying it the opposite way that even the great Torah giants do recognize that there's beauty even it, yeah. outside of Israel. It, like it we reminds have. them of the beauty of, of right. Israel. Very good. I love that. <laughs> uh, okay, can we talk a little bit about Israel now, please? Uh, uh, and then we could certainly talk more about no, Masora. Let, let's discuss there, lunch. Let's I'm, discuss. <laughs> are you enjoying the meals here? Are they working out okay? Okay. Am I what? That the meals are phenomenal, oh, right? Yeah, of that's the, listen, no, oh, w- w- speaking about Israel, uh, yeah. you can't compare the taste of 
everything you, you, you taste in America is, I, I, I'm sorry, when you compare it to the Israeli taste of, of fruits, right. cheese, bread. Right, vegetables. I'm sorry, vegetables. Right. I'm sorry, you have a problem here. We know I, that. It's, we not know the, that. it's not the camp, it's, it's America. We know we're lacking. Believe okay. me, we know we're lacking. I okay. remind my listeners every day that uh, we're lacking. Believe <laughs> me. The future of the Jewish people is in the state of Israel. I've been saying that for the last 20 years every single day. So believe me, we know this. There's an, I'm going to paraphrase. I don't remember the exact line. I'm sure someone can Google it, but I'll paraphrase it. There was something like a Lincoln proved that uh, a poor man could be president and Roosevelt proved a, uh, a disabled person could be president and uh, Truman proved we don't need a president. I think we have to apply <laughs> that. I think we have to apply that to what's happening in Israel. I think after all this time, we've realized that we really don't need the leaders exactly. anymore. The country could run very well on its own. And I know it's, you know, I'm saying this tongue in cheek, but it, it has to make an impression on people at this point that the void of leadership in Israel is so vast. What do you have to say about uh, this? Yeah, I want to see it from, you know, look at it from an optimistic point of view. Okay. Israel is stronger than its politicians, meaning after two years, three, almost three years, five elections. I, I remember when I used to take, you know, a flight to Israel when we lived here to cover the elections right. and my neighbors, they asked me, okay, how, I mean, how often do you do it? I mean, every two, three months you fly to Israel to cover the elections and it's been three years, COVID, so many things, Russia, Ukraine, everything in the world changed, but uh, no stability. And in a way, yeah, there are so many challenges we're facing, but I think in a way, Israel, we prove that we're stronger than those um, that from, from this politi political crisis. Because in a way you see, you're invited to come, by the way. I saw so many American tourists this summer. They come back and everything works. This, uh, the, the IDF, the, yeah. you have Yeshivot, you have the educational system, the financial system. Yeah, we, we're facing a problem in the Knesset, in our parliament completely. And uh, I can't tell you I'm happy about it. But in a way, you see the Jewish story is... Is bigger and stronger. I'm in a telling way. you, we have to start thinking. Israel doesn't need a prime minister. I'm <laughs> telling you, uh, Sivan Rahab Meir is here now. You, uh, you're delivering shiurim. It's something that you do, obviously, very often here, inspiring a lot of people, especially the women who are in Camp Masora. And I'm sure you're having an opportunity while you're in America to do so, whether it's by Zoom or in person in other places, as well. We first became, as you know, we first became very familiar with you by using your parasha book. At our Shabbat table, something that our children continue to make fun of us about, because, <laughs> yeah. it, because it was such a dominating part of our Shabbat table every single a week. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, you may recall, you may not recall what you said about Parsha Pinchas. By the way, this business of us being a Parsha off is another rant, oh, that's, another yeah. rant of mine, you, which I must discuss with you. Do you want some spoilers about next week? I have the spoilers of Parsha Matot. Hey, but it must be very, know, good. It must be very know, good for you here. Yeah, yeah. You got an extra week to Everything's prepare. Everything's ready. <laughs> From next episode, I don't, I don't have everything. I love it. You see, it does work out well for certain people. Anyway, I got to discuss that yeah. with you in a minute. But I will tell you that you pointed out in, in Parsha Pinchas, you pointed out uh, in the piece about Benot Slavchad, mm -hmm. uh, this incredible Klayakar that we have been mentioning for the last 25 years on the air, that Nashim Mechabevot, I believe is the way to pronounce it, right? Mechabevot. Mechabevot et Haaretz. Not a criticism of men, but a statement that when it comes to the land of Israel, the women's perspective is unmatched, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why the Benot Slavchad are... Exactly. They were in a higher, I would say, level, and you see throughout the book of now, Bamidbar, but even... The women always understand. They understand the situation. The men always, when you when you speak about chet, the golden calf, chet right. and about Korach, and about the Meraglim, the spies, they are always wrong, and the women are always right. The I'm men sorry. ruin it every time. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> they ruin things and, every and, single and time. And you know why? And I, I'm going to connect it to the camp. You know why? Because of Miriam, or of Moshe Tzvi Neria points out, look at the way Moshe and Aharon educated the men. They just 
taught them Torah, they talk to them, even in Shiratayam, they, they sing and then the men sing after them. Right. And when you see Miriam, Miriam is dancing with them. Miriam, she's playing, she has her tof Miriam, her right. tambourine. They're all dancing together. It's an educational experience in a way, and it touches uh, the, the, the women uh, better than, you know, just teaching the men. I think the kids today, they need those experiences. They need, you know, they need us to, to create a, an educational experience, um, I would say, memories. Experiential uh, education. Exactly. Right. It must be an edu educational fun. And Ravneria says that's the reason the women, they loved Miriam because they were just dancing with her. It wasn't like a Torah shiur. It, they were like together, and that's the, that's the reason they were in a higher level. Well, with that in mind, it would seem you would say that except for Zimriya, girls' campus <laughs> is better than boys' campus. That's what you would say, it seems. That's, I don't want to get that. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> I don't Guys, be wary. Be wary of journalist Yvonne Raham Meir when, when she visits this side of the camp. Speaking about the boys' <laughs> campus, and I don't know uh, uh, how many years you, uh, Yoshua was in, on, on your Shabbat table. Now he's, he's older, he's 24. That's one of the scoops here, you know, the next generation. For yeah. me, now you have a new Yichas. You're Yoshua's single father. Yeah. That's not the uh, Nachum Siegel show. That's I told, uh, I told uh, Ari when I came to camp this morning, the guard, the guard did not ask me, are you Nachum Siegel? The guard asked me, are you Yoshua's father? <laughs> exactly. We lived in that building the first three years of Camp Masora. I was the first head counselor here many, many years ago. Wow. And now Yoshua has taken on that mantle. And we uh, are watching him and Gavri and all of our children with great pride. Uh, cool. I got to do this issue with you. You have to help me out here. It, it is such a pet peeve of mine. The, the entire reason that we are a partial off from Israel, that the diaspora is a partial off Israel, is because of some rule, a chutz la'aretz rule, that we have to follow in terms of Devarim being before Tishabav, in terms of Bamidbar or Bidmidbar, is the actual name of Harsha, being before uh, being before Shavuot, etc., etc. Even in Israel, there are years when they can't follow the rule because of the way the calendar comes out. Exactly. So with that in mind, we in Chutz Laaretz, the moment Pesach ends, should catch up immediately to Eretz Yisrael You're and right. continue from there. It bothers me so much. And, and, and Rabbi Fass, who you know, who we work with in Nefesh B'Nefesh, so he said before Parsha Shlach, he said, and he had an extra week to prepare, obviously, he, he, he said to us, he said, no, I like the fact that, that there's this disconnect, because as much as we're connected with Chutz Laaretz, there should be a disconnect. I said, Rabbi Fass, I agree with you, but not when we're doing it because of we're following a Chutz Laaretz rule. We should be disconnected because <laughs> we're following an Eretz Yisrael rule. I need you to help me on okay. this cause. So I think you are uh, a bit confused. Uh, the interview with Rabbi Meir Goldwicht is afterwards, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, Steve, I'm a journalist from Israel. That's I know, all. but this is a political issue. <laughs> I need diaspora jury on the same page as Israeli jury. But maybe jury. we That's must sometimes feel we're not, it's not the same pulse. Maybe it's healthy to feel that, as Rabbi Fast told you, right. to feel that uh, sometimes we're not, you know, you have Yom Tov Shani Shel Galuyot, second right. Yom Tov, you have, Don't we, have those, yeah, <laughs> we have those, this, those tiny differences, and it reminds Reminds us of the fact we're brothers, but still one big family, but then sometimes, uh, you know. Uh, uh, maybe you've calmed me down a bit on this issue. <laughs> uh, so you do these reports here that go back to Israeli television, and uh, you need a good background. What's the best <laughs> background in camp? Where's the best place okay. to stand to do a report? Okay. Again, there's a beautiful lake. There's some lovely buildings. We have the Misora flag in back of you. What's the best background to use when okay, you're doing so a report? Okay, so there are auditions. We're still uh, examining. <laughs> it was in the middle of the, the, you know, that's the basic question we ask us every time. Yedidia is my cameraman every right. time, but we... We tried the lake. You know, it's sunny. It's it's like fake. When it's beautiful, right. 
in, in TV, it's ugly on TV. Right. It must be you, the, the angle the of right the angle sun. Yeah, exactly. So and usually the morning show, they want me to, to, to be, uh, to broadcast. And now that's it's afternoon here. Now, no, oh, it's the middle of the night here. The right. middle of right. the night. You know, camp time, right. it's 1230. Right. So tonight we brought many teenagers to stand behind me and just say, good morning, Israel. Yeah, we saw that, right. And shout and laugh. But um, every time we take, like, you know, we're, we have so many options here. Uh, but in Israel, they're thrilled. They ask me so many questions. So what is it? And wh- why are you there? And what do they do? And four hours from Manhattan, why, why are you? I mean, why, why do you go? So, I mean. Wh- but it's funny because I have friends in Israel who do send children to some type of camping program. What is it? Just mm. a week or two? Like just um, a week or two to have activities? Nahum, they're Americans, I guess. And that's <laughs> your, your friends. Yeah. <laughs> the average Israeli is family. Is never going to have that. Sometimes type. we have a kaitana. It's called a kaitana. It's like a program for two weeks but the concept of taking the phones from the kids and right. you know connecting them to themselves and sports and nature it's a uh, okay maybe next year you'll interview me in my, in my Israeli camp let's Amen see to that. the Israeli Masora if camp if you can get that started I want to visit <laughs> believe you me I want to okay. see it live and in person they're invited um, with the school year maybe official, can Yoshua work for me that I don't know <laughs> that I I think we have to keep him here Masora I mean come on we can't do that to Ari and Dina <laughs> um, the school year begins September the 1st right? exactly the, it ends June 1st uh, July 1st July 1st so July is 1st. it Two months of Israeli kids exactly. generally having nothing to do? Uh, is that? Uh, nothing you wouldn't to say do. nothing to do. Uh, yeah, what but, would you describe it as? What happens during um, the summer months? Generally, during the first month, there are, there's a program called Beta Sefer Shelakait, like the summer school. It's inside the school, same teachers. They get a good salary for that month if they come. And more usually of a schedule? Have, July is usually the parents can still work. Right. That's for July. August, you must uh, face the facts. Right. The fact you have kids and you have right. to do something with you them. You got to take a trip. <laughs> and by the way, I, I sometimes you know I, I also see this as an advantage. You know, sending your kids away for two months right. it's 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 also not you know yep. maybe that's not the perfect solution families in a way they're forced to be together in august and that's also great you know 100 uh, percent uh there was once an election in israel i don't remember which which recent election <laughs> it was and they wanted to arrange a date in august and they said we can't the entire country's yeah, away they're away yeah so there's no way you could have that uh final words Sivan rahab mayor give me the final word what you would tell people listening about this incredible camp masora what would you say Wow, I think the the real word mesora for me when I report from here, the Israelis ask me mesora. It's a very ancient word in in Hebrew. It's not something you say mesora, and I I'm proud of the word. They know nothing about the camp, but the fact I I say the word mesora every day, meaning our tradition, our heritage, our ancient you know roots. Uh, I think that the word in a way, the, the brand, the icon of the, just saying the word mesora. Uh, in a way, makes me happy. Happy to say it on Israeli TV. Amazing, phenomenal. Thank you so much. Stick around Thank for a you. minute. I'm here because I need a photograph of you signing <laughs> our Sivan Rahab Meir Parsha book. Wow! Because this will make my kids cringe even more. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. okay. Say it again. Not, we actually have a, 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 I think we told you this once. We actually have an introduction at the Shabbat table when we introduce you to our Torah. How do you host the Shabbat table? How do you do it? Well, first of all, we have a very active, and be- this is my wife, Stacy, and we have a very ah, active, a- active and beautiful Shabbat table, Baruch Hashem, with a lot of discussion. Uh, in fact, it was funny, at our Shabbat table, you know, Yoshua has a very good sense of humor. So <laughs> yeah. at the Shabbat table a couple of months ago, we said that Sivan Rahab Meir is coming to Camp Masorah. So one of his sisters turns to Yoshua and says, what's she going to be doing? And he says, head of waterfront. As if, you know, like, like shouldn't you realize 
realize why Sivan Rahabe here is Uket Misora. Anyway, so there is an introduction. In the introduction, How, what do you say? I, I would introduce it by describing you as an Orthodox Jewish journalist and that you have a book called Hashtag Parasha. Right. We even mentioned your uh, your home on Rehov Abba Eben yeah. because, as you know, it was very close to my brother's yeah, house. Yeah, I'm sorry we moved. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah he moved yeah. also. Don't oh, okay, worry. Great. Yeah, so, he's back okay. in Nachlaot, so okay. don't, don't worry okay. about that. Uh, are you still in Yerushalayim or yeah, not? Yeah, You're still in Yerushalayim. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so this this would be a, a very big presentation. You know, of course, it's me. I can't just go ahead and read a Dvar Torah. I have to make sure to give some type of elaborate introduction. And then the pièce de résistance, if you will. And then we would hand the book, the book, the one you wrote. Yeah. We would hand it to one of our children to read that week's Dvar Torah. Wow. What do you think of that? Cool. So cool. All, I can, uh, all I can tell you is you made quite an impact on our family, whether <laughs> our kids liked it or not. So there you go. Wow. More coming up. Sivan Rahav Meir, a special guest. A round of applause, everybody, of course. Thank you. Oh, no, you sure heard me describe that whole thing. That's terrible. Uh, coming up. By 20- the way, Nachum, yeah. Nachum, uh, okay. you'll have a new book soon. Uh, for kids, children's book. A parasha or something yeah. else? The parasha, but for kids. Very nice. Yeah, so uh, soon. Will the Benot Slavchad make their way into that book or not? Will they be mentioned? They may be mentioned. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> for, for you. I mean, Dedicated you know, to... I mean, the, some of the most important women in Jewish history. I mean, come on. More coming up. You're listening to a Tuesday morning broadcast at JM the AM. That was my conversation with Sivan Rahab Meir during our visit to Camp Missora. Thanks so much for listening to JM Rewind. Plenty more coming up if you keep it right here at the Nahum Siegel Network.